am not a avid traveler. I haven't been all over. I've been, I don't know if I told you this, I was to Israel. Um, I, I've been, I've been, I've been my fair share of, of places around the country as well. I've been, uh, what was that other foreign country I went to? Uh, Canada, I was there. But even I, having flown, I don't know, I've been on maybe, maybe 30 flights in the last 10 years, counting connections. I could probably tell you by heart the spiel that the flight attendants give when they stand up in the front and they get out that little piece of seatbelt and show you how to click it together. And when they tell you that your, your uh, seat cushion is a flotation device and show you all the exits as if you're not just going to exit the plane through the biggest hole in the plane should you crash. And I, I've noticed the last time I was in a plane that not only was nobody in the seats paying any attention, the flight attendant wasn't either. She could do this on such autopilot that she was saying these things and in between phrases, having a conversation with her fellow flight attendant. I thought, oh my goodness, that's multitasking. I mean, the words, they have to be said because of federal airline regulations or something, but they're, they're kind of just background noise. In fact, the only time anyone ever talks about or thinks about that spiel is when someone makes a joke about it, right? If it's on a sitcom or a stand-up comedian does a little rant about all of the, the kind of cute little things about flying, then someone will bring it up. Otherwise, it's just background noise. Now, I, I think that, sadly, a very similar thing has happened with a very important message that we find in the Scripture. And that is the message that sinners need to repent. Sinners, which is all of us, must repent of our sins. And when we hear that phrase, it's in my mind, I think of a cartoon. I think like in the New Yorker or, or, some, or some newspaper strip, a guy with a sandwich board on that says, repent, the end is near. Or, or a kind of a caricature of a man on a street corner or up on a soapbox ranting and raving about repenting while people walk by and don't even notice or listen to the words that he is saying. And I think the enemy loves that. Because this is such a central theme of the scriptures. That sinners must repent of their sins. To repent, of course, means to turn away from, to change direction, to have a, a change in our orientation instead of towards self, now toward God, to have a change in our appetites, in everything about us, that there must be a change. In fact, in the, the Greek, the word metanoia, which is translated uh, repentance, it simply means a change of mind. And we find out that this change of mind is us being given a new mind, a new heart, becoming a new creation. The world looks at that, though, and laughs. We read about judgment in this passage. This, this uh, Joel passage that uh, Peter quotes in his uh, sermon on Pentecost. And, and we hear this stuff, and people, they scoff and laugh. I was on a, a podcast this week debating with an atheist, which is, I don't know how that even happened. I don't even like to do that kind of thing. Uh, and one thing the guy said was, how could a God who's loving... Tell people, you need to repent because judgment is coming. Why wouldn't he just say, ah, forget about it? I mean, I look at my life, he said, and I haven't killed anyone. I haven't robbed any banks. I haven't done anything all that bad. So I've, I've broken some of these rules. How could a loving and just God want to punish me and, and put me into judgment for that? And I said to him something that I heard uh, Dr. Michael Whitmer say once, and I said, you got to remember that even in our world, and even in our own legal system, it doesn't just matter how you've hurt someone, how you've made an offense. It also matters 
who you've offended, who you've done it to. For example, if you kill a mosquito, no one cares, right? Someone might say, hey, thanks, that might have bitten me. If you kill a dog, we start to worry. Somebody's probably calling the uh, ASPCA or the Humane Society or the cops and saying it's probably a serial killer next door. Right? If you kill a person, we throw you in prison, maybe for the rest of your life. If you kill a child or an elderly person, we want to bury you under the jail. If you kill the president, we execute you, no matter what. It matters who we are offending and who we are uh, rebelling against and who we are sinning against. And we have rebelled against the highest being, the God who created us, the God of the universe. And yet the message of this passage is that God the Son came down and bore the wrath of God for our sins on his shoulder, paid the price so that we could be saved. Now we left this with uh, the, the people being amazed, being perplexed, because they had heard the preaching of the gospel But everyone, being from all over the known world, was hearing it in his own language. And they said, what does this mean? It sounded like a cacophony of Babylon. They looked up, and it wasn't a whole bunch of linguists and scholars in their scholarly robes. No, it was just a bunch of guys from Galilee. Regular Joes. I mean, Peter's probably wearing overalls or the equivalent of overalls. They go, what what on earth does this mean? They're amazed, they're perplexed. And then we read, but others mocking said, ah, they're filled with new wine. They're drunk. That's what's going on. That's where we left this. And today we see that Peter picks up this opportunity to preach a great sermon that has been talked about for ages, that has been looked at as an example of some of the finest gospel preaching. And certainly we see that it has some of the greatest effect And recognize it's not that long, and if you're thinking, well, if this is an example sermon, how come your sermons aren't that short? I want to point you to verse 40. It says, and with many other words he bore witness. This is just the highlight reel. Okay, it was a longer sermon than this. But it is the first sermon of the Christian era spoken by the leader of the church, the rock on whom I will build my church, Jesus said, St. Peter himself. And it had the effect of bringing thousands of people into the faith. And so we should all, not just preachers, but all of us, study this. Because I hear people say all the time, I'd like to share my faith. I'd like to talk to people about Jesus, but I don't know what to say. Well, might I suggest that instead of looking online for scripts or little techniques and tricks, we might turn our attention instead to Scripture. Fill our hearts and our minds Fill the reservoir within us with Scripture so that when we open our mouths, trusting the Holy Spirit to guide us, it's Scripture that comes out. I want to talk about a few aspects of this sermon briefly today. And the first one is, it's rooted in Scripture, if you haven't figured that out yet. It's it's the kind of thing that, that you look at it and just by the way it's indented in your English Bible, you can see that more than half of it is quotations from the Old Testament. Today, I hear people discussing Christianity. I, I hear people giving uh, maybe classes or lectures or, or tutorials on how to share the gospel or proclaim the gospel to other people, and it seems like Scripture is not the main thing. The assumption is, well, no one cares what Scripture says, so we have to find something more relevant. 
something that connects a little more readily. You know, you have to have cute stories. You have to, you have, to have a testimony. I remember growing up in the 80s, that was always the thing. You, you have to make sure you know that testimony by heart. Now, I'm not saying that someone's personal experience being shared never has an effect. I'm saying Peter's got a better testimony than you, and he doesn't even mention it. Not here. We were always told, shine that light back on yourself. Look at me and look what God is at work doing. Now, now you might do that a bit. God has saved me through Christ, but that's not the emphasis here. It's on the scriptures. He doesn't even use any movie clips. I don't know what this guy's thinking. But more than half of it is scripture quotation because scripture itself is powerful. I don't know why we're seeing this move toward even when we reference scripture, it's got to be changed a little. It's got to be paraphrased. These things I see on Facebook all the time. So one the other day, it said, uh, God looked down at the world and thought it needed one of you. And then at the bottom, it said Galatians 1.15. And I thought, what translation is that? That ain't Galatians 1.15. And, and I think they were trying to say two different things, but it's confusing. And the world doesn't know the Bible. The world has got no idea. And so we need to bring it to them. When, when someone says, well, I would, I'd use Scripture when I talk to unbelievers, but they don't know the Scripture, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, that's like saying, I would teach you how to drive before you go on that long trip, but you don't know how to drive. So, no, we need to share the Scriptures and trust that they are powerful and that God's Word never returns void. This notion that we have to sort of release the, the truth contained in the cage of the Bible from the Bible Get it out of those dusty old words so it can be powerful is nonsense. This is how it is powerful. This is how it was given to us. And this is what we are to proclaim. He has some odd choices here, I think. He's already been studying the scriptures for 40 days. Jesus has been explaining how he is found in all of scripture. Jesus has opened their minds to see how the, the truth of his, the gospel, the Messiah coming in the person of Jesus Christ, dying, rising again, ascending into heaven. It's all contained in the Old Testament. And so Peter is ready to do this. And the, the choice of text, I think, tells us a bit. He goes right to a judgment, a judgment oracle which is found in the prophet of Joel. It says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is not the sort of scripture people usually use to break the ice, right? Could you tell me about this Jesus that you're so into? Right, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And yet Peter does this. Peter goes right to it. And this, this book of Joel, if you haven't studied it, it, it takes place after there's been this horrible, horrible, either literal locust plague coming in, eating everything, or that's used as a metaphor to describe an army having coming, come through and just destroying everything. And rather than say, they're there, things will get better, the prophet Joel says, oh, this is barely just a foreshadowing of worse judgment that's to come. 
That's where Peter goes. And yet, look at that last word. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. You see, any time in the Old Testament you have a judgment oracle, you have judgment and a prophecy, there is going to be interwoven with it hope, a silver lining. There's a Messiah coming. There is hope coming. There is salvation coming. Peter actually stops this quote before Joel goes back to talking about judgment. Because what's on his mind in this present age, these last days, as he calls them, salvation. This is the age, this is the epoch during which God holds wide, throws wide the door and says, all who will come in and you will be saved. And that is the call that Peter is making. But he acknowledges that judgment is a reality. Then he jumps to Psalm 16. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now we're told this is a psalm of David in the book of Psalms, but it can't be entirely a psalm about David. David knows he's going to die, and he did. And David's body did decay, as everyone does. And of course, David's tomb, as Peter says, is well known, and people could go visit it if they wanted to double check. Rather, what happens here is what often happens in these messianic psalms where David starts off talking about himself and he's got the Holy Spirit in him and the thing sort of gets away from him. And he finds himself at the end prophesying, prophesying about Jesus and about how he would rise from the dead. Then Psalm 110, we see the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the most, I believe, at least one of the most, I believe it's the most quoted of all the Psalms in the New Testament. Maybe even the most quoted of all the Old Testament passages. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In the Hebrew, that, that first, the Lord, that's Yahweh. That's, that's the name of, of the God who is, the God who created everything. The Lord said to my Lord. In the Hebrew, that's Adonai also used as Lord. In fact, whenever people refer to Christ throughout the New Testament, more often than not, they simply call him the Lord, Adonai. How can it be that the Lord is talking to the Lord? And both of these people are David's Lord. The answer is Christ. The answer is, this is the Father saying to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And somehow he portrays the death of Christ as a victory. A victory that gives Jesus dominion over everything. This is so full and flush with Scripture. We could go on and on, but let's move on to number two. This sermon is Christ-centered. And it sort of seems like this should be more about the Holy Spirit. Isn't it the Holy Spirit's day? It's Pentecost, right? I mean, it would be weird. I mean, it'd be like if I went to, to uh, the... Party for Emerson today, graduation. And I was like, I have an announcement to make about myself. I'm going to try and take some of the... No, no, no. This is supposed to be... No, it's not, though. Because what does the Holy Spirit do but testify about the Son? 
That's what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do, and that's what he does. And so as he fills Peter, he, he inspires him to begin to shine the light, not on himself, not even on the Spirit, but on the Son, on Jesus himself. Again, nobody, nobody had a better story than Peter. I denied him three times. He forgave me. And yet he says, let me tell you instead about Jesus' life, about what Jesus has done for us. That is what has the power to save. My story is not the gospel. If you're counting on my story to save you, I feel bad for you. The gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. This basic story of Jesus' life has often been called the kerygma, simply the Greek word for a proclamation. And it has several elements to it. It always contains a historical proclamation of the life and death and resurrection of Christ as a fulfillment of prophecy. It contains Jesus presented as both Lord and Christ, or Lord and Messiah. He's the one who created everything. Nothing is created apart from him. And also the anointed one who was sent to bear our sins and make peace between God and man. And then a call to believe in him and receive forgiveness of sins. There must be a call to believe. This is what Peter preaches here. This is what Paul says he preached in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. See how it's full of the Scriptures and full of Christ. The emphasis being on the life of Christ. Sometimes we chicken out and we just start pointing at some of the teachings of Christ because many of them are celebrated by the world as well. People who don't believe Jesus in any way is Lord or divine or born of a virgin or resurrected or coming again can say, isn't it awfully nice, though, to love your enemies? Isn't it awfully nice to turn the other cheek and be kind? Peter, though, he, he pins all of this to the life of Jesus and the death and the resurrection to what Jesus did on our behalf. He doesn't couch it in more politic language that's probably going to be accepted by his hearers. He doesn't say, guys, we were, we're all broken inside, but God loves us in our brokenness and meets us in our brokenness so that we can be whole again. Some generic message with no blood, no cross, no death and substitutionary atonement, no hard-to-believe resurrection. No promise of something to come that might make us seem silly to the world. No, that's not what Peter does at all. He tells those gathered that Jesus' death on the cross made their salvation possible. That this blood paid for their sins, the sins of all who believe, and turned from their sin. And, and that the resurrection was God's stamp of approval, that he received that payment. And that he, he, he gave us the the narrow road that leads to life and we see that road in jesus himself so it's full of scripture it's full of jesus and thirdly this is a bold message and you might think at first well we'd expect nothing less from peter peter never seemed to be one to back down from a fight right so the fact that he's he's near he's a stone's throw from the temple he can probably see it and think all those guys who put jesus to death they probably want to kill me too. And they're right in there. That's not going to slow Peter down. Soon we're going to see in the, in the next chapter that he's walking into the temple. 
He's got no problem with that. He's, he's, going, he's not cowering in the upper room anymore. Something's changed. And even though he's not one to, to be uh, backing down from a fight, I think it is significant that Peter here takes center stage because he's not the kind of guy to draw attention to himself. He's not the kind of center of attention, I'll be the spokesman individual. I mean, where is he in the priest's courtyard while Jesus is being tried? Right in the middle of things? No, lurking at the edge. Just seeing how will it play out. And then when people give him opportunities to testify and, and take center stage and say, oh, weren't you one of his followers three times in a row? Oh, no, 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 go away. Just let me kind of lurk in the background. Even when he makes his big move with the sword, he comes out of the shadows, chops off the ear, and then he, next thing we know, he's running back off into the darkness, and yet here he is boldly saying, listen to me, brothers, drawing attention to himself. Something has changed. What's changed is he's been given the Holy Spirit and filled with boldness. If we want to proclaim the gospel, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with boldness. You say, well, I don't know, I feel like I should already have it. I've been a Christian for quite a while. Don't worry about it. Paul, near the end of his ministry, Paul who would always, no matter who was his audience, give the gospel and give it clearly. He said, pray for me that in the opening of my mouth I will boldly proclaim the gospel. He said, give me prayers for boldness. We need to be praying for one another and for ourselves as we seek opportunities to testify to Christ. And this is a clear and bold testimony. This is not some namby-pamby, watered-down gospel. I mean, he says, straight out, you crucified him. This Jesus whom you crucified with the help of evil men. Today, we don't even like to tell people they're sinners. You know, you hear all these code words. Well, we've got mistakes, oopsie-daisies, etc., etc., Peter doesn't back down from saying, you, you actually are guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ. People are offended when they hear that they have offended a holy God. And so often we choose not to talk about it. But the point is that this grace is so amazing because the offense is so large. Today, we often wink at sin. It's not uncommon in a church for pride to be looked at as, as even a virtue, a good thing, for, for casual sex and fornication to be, well, it's just part of how people do things today. The church bows down to the world's values and tries to harmonize them with the Scriptures, forgetting it's the Scriptures that say to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Enmity with God ought to be something that we do not play with. But here the apostle plays none of these games. This should, by all accounts, be bad news, by the way, what he's telling them. Remember that guy that you helped to put to death? Not only is he back, but he happens to be the Lord of all things, and all-powerful, and just. And yet it's not bad news. It is good news. Because it is even now coming to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. A couple more things I want you to notice about this sermon. First of all, he very quickly answers the mockers. He doesn't dwell on this. He doesn't, he doesn't feed the trolls, as they say. They say, you guys are drunk. What's his response? Dude, it's nine in the morning. That's it. 
Move on. Many people, when they try to share their faith, they get very discouraged and upset because they get tied up out in the weeds and all these things with someone who just wants to mock the gospel. Jesus said, do not cast your pearls to swine or throw your holy things to dogs because they will trample them underfoot, turn around, and attack you. And so when Jesus is before Pilate, he answers him. He doesn't, he doesn't answer him at great length, but he answers him. When Pilate is asking what is truth and this sort of thing, he's showing that perhaps he's a little more open to listening. Are you really a king? It is you who have said it. He acknowledges these things. But when he's before Herod, he doesn't say a word. Herod, who we, we read much earlier in the Gospel of Luke, from that day he desired to see Jesus. He never finds out what Jesus' voice even sounds like. Because he's not about to give his pearls of God's grace and this message of salvation to this man that he called a fox who would simply want to trample them underfoot. And so if someone is mocking you, well, remember, blessed are you when people mock you and laugh at you and say all sorts of false things about you because of me. Great is your reward in heaven. But don't, don't dwell in it. Don't dwell on it. Don't worry about it. It's nine in the morning. I'm not drunk. Hear this message. Those who are listening and who were perplexed and amazed, I can tell you why this is good news for you. He answers the mockers quickly, and notice that all of this sermon is answering the questions of the people. I think sometimes we try really quickly to go from whatever topic at hand to spiritual things, and that often takes the form of, let me tell you what question you should have, and then let me answer it for you. That's a little condescending. I've had people try that with me on any number of topics, spiritual or not. Well, what are the questions answered here? What does this mean? What does this mean? A lot of people ask me that about a lot of different things. That's the question to be answered. People have questions about the meaning of life, the meaning of things, the meaning of it all. And the answer includes Jesus for those of us who are his followers. What does this mean? And then he's going to answer the most important follow-up question. What then shall we do? This is a dialogue here. Not just talking, but listening. And that's important in sharing the gospel. So what gathered these people together was the sounds from the upper room. The sound of people proclaiming and everyone hearing it in their own language. It created some interest. And they came and they listened. I want to point out that this isn't uh, some kind of a gimmick. This wasn't some planned uh, sideshow or something that would bring together a group and maybe get them mentioned on the news. No, what is happening is a simple proclamation of the truths of the gospel that everyone can understand. And here, as they seek to understand more, they ask these questions. And they find not just more conversation, but answers. Jesus said, seek and you will find. Seek and you will find. This is, this is not a, a loudspeaker blasting out. This is whoever happens to be passing and whoever they happen to tap on the shoulder and say, what's going on? Gather together. Let's talk. I want to also point out Peter here is not a huckster. He's not using cheap tricks. He's not the sham wow guy. He doesn't have a catchphrase, right? Jesus died for you. Zowie, zowie. No, he simply gives a simple 
proclamation and they all understand because the Holy Spirit is at work. Now, sometimes we have to talk to people that we feel like there's a, a, a chasm there. And I think, I don't know if I can talk to you in a way that you can understand. Well, we see in this example that the Holy Spirit bridges that gap. And we have to trust that he can do that in our lives as well. We see next week and the week after that as they go forward, the apostles bear out this different kind of living and this different kind of message in their lives, in their ministries. They go into the temple and they, they heal the man begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. They share with each other and the world is looking. And Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. I believe the churches that are crashing and burning the hardest these days, they're trying not to be distinctive. They're trying not to have a message that's different and a lifestyle that's different and values that are different. Trying not to offend the world. And when we do that, when we compromise and say, see, we're not so different, the world says, oh, good for you. But I don't need that because I've already got it. When we emulate the world, we, we give up our right to win them. We give up our right to proclaim to them salvation, repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So what is the response here? We see in verse 37 that it was enormous. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. What shall we do? This reminds me a bit of the Gospel of Luke. If you go back to Luke chapter 3, we find that there are people who ask this very same question. John is preparing the way for Jesus, and what he is doing much of the time is pointing people to their own inability to keep the law, their own inability to live a life that is good enough for God, and he's kind of preparing the crowd for the Messiah who will come and say, yeah, you can't do it, but I will do it. I will do it, and I will say it is finished. So the crowds ask him, John, what shall we do? What then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share them with the one who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, what shall we do? He said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be content with your wages. Now we've got the same question asked of Peter after the death and resurrection of Christ. There are so many things he could have said because there are so many commands that Jesus gave us. He could have given kind of a list like John the Baptist did. Well, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, love your neighbor as yourself, lay up treasures in heaven, go into your closet and pray. Shall I go on? But he knows he's speaking to people who are dead in their trespasses. And if he just gives them more law and piles more law and more commandments on top of them, that will crush them because they can't do these things. And so he goes to the heart of the issue, which is the issue of the heart. And that issue is they need a new one. And the way that that happens is through repentance and faith. Churches often, I think, want to leave this aside. We don't want to talk about sin. We've already said that. We don't want to talk about repentance. We don't want to bring up the fact that we cannot obey the law without a new heart. That there must be. You must be born again. There must be something supernatural that brings us from death to life. 
When I see churches that are designed to attract unbelievers and seekers, I think that's great. But too often, when the unbelievers and seekers have gathered together, the message they're given is, here's some tips for living. Here's some advice. Here's some life hacks. Stuff that you can do if you try hard enough. That just gives us a false sense of confidence in the flesh. Repentance is required. C.S. Lewis said, We have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. I've heard others, and I have heard myself, recounting cruelties and falsehoods committed in boyhood, as if there were no concern of the present speakers, and even with laughter. But mere time does nothing, either to the fact or the guilt of a sin. The guilt is washed out not by time, but by repentance and the blood of Christ. If we have repented these early sins, we should remember the price of our forgiveness and be humble. Three days before I just read this, I had been sharing a story about something rotten I did, and someone, you did that? And I laughed. I said, I was a kid. How silly. If our sins have been forgiven, what great a cost has been paid to forgive. But we don't want to hear that. We, we don't want to hear that we need to repent. And so we find cute little euphemisms, even in the church. The word repent is very out of fashion. Even though when you read the Bible, it happens again and again and again. What must I do to be saved? Invite Jesus to live in your heart. Commit your life to following him. Ask God to give you a new start. What must I do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. That is the lesson. That is the answer. That is the message here. Repent and be baptized. Repenting, of course, is turning away from sin and turning toward God. Baptism is an outward sign and seal of that, that it has happened. A sign and seal of our repentance and a breaking away from our wicked generation and identifying ourselves publicly with Jesus Christ. By the way, that baptistry is going to be full next week. If you haven't been baptized and you believe in Jesus, I want you to talk to me after the service or sometime this week so we can talk about baptism. Because the New Testament knows no such category as the unbaptized Christian. It's a very brief period of time between faith and baptism. Look at the story we're going to see of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You believe? I believe. Hey, there's water. What's to stop me? What's to keep me from being baptized? Going down in the the waters of baptism, it's a living picture for us of being buried with Christ. The old self dying, being buried, and then when we come out of the water, rising again to newness of life, a new creation. What a beautiful picture, and what a beautiful way for God to be at work in our hearts and amongst our churches. Oftentimes, even, even that, though, is misunderstood. As me saying, I'm going to do my best from now on. It's an old sermon illustration about a little girl who was in church and, and there were a number of people getting baptized. And she started to get really concerned. Why is that mean man pushing all those people down into the water? And she, she was objecting and her mother's like, Shh, I'll tell you later. Finally they got home and she, she starts trying to explain what was happening was uh, it's, it, you know, it's a symbol. They go into the water because Jesus, you know, they were sinners and, and, and now they're going to try hard and do good. And the little girl said, oh, but why didn't the pastor just spank them instead? <laughs> you know, waterboarding seems a bit excessive. That's not what baptism is about. 
We meet God in the waters of baptism because the Holy Spirit is the sign and seal that God has accepted the payment and the sign and seal that we have been born again is right there in those waters of baptism. How many believed and were baptized that day? Hmm? 40? 3,000! 3,000 believed and were baptized. The greatest miracle, people focus on the miracle of the speaking in tongues. That's all right. That's good. The greatest miracle was 3,000 who were dead, dead in their sins and trespasses, who belonged to the enemy, now freed and given life, brought into the fellowship with the Creator whom they had been hopelessly separated from, and now they are His children. What a miracle. A.W. Tozer said this, Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. That is sin in its concentrated essence. Yet because it is natural, it appears to be good. What shall we do? They asked the apostles. What shall we do? It is the deep heart cry of every man and woman who suddenly realized that he is a usurper and sits on a stolen throne. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins, we look down and say, I don't belong on this throne. I do not belong here. I've stolen it. I'm a usurper. And we turn to Christ and we must repent of our sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you confess with your lips Jesus Christ is Lord, believe in your heart God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you have been saved, you ought to want to get in that baptistry and be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if you've been baptized, you ought to want to go and find others who don't know Him, who are lost, who are dead in their sins, and bring them to their Maker. Bring them to salvation. Bring them to the foot of the cross. You don't have to have a crazy, amazing testimony. You don't have to be a gifted speaker. You don't, you don't have to be able to make all these little cute turns of phrase. You don't have to be able to do anything. But submit to the Holy Spirit. Open your mouth and tell people what Jesus has done. Let's go to Him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the simple message that Peter brought on that first Pentecost Sunday. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that 3,000 souls passed from death into life. 3,000 men and women were born again and baptized. Lord Jesus, we pray to see that kind of revival. We know from, from historical studies that more people live in Lansing than lived in Jerusalem at that time. Lord, we want to see 3,000 people come to faith here. We want to hear stories from churches about influxes of people who are seeking truth. We want, to, we want to encounter those, Lord, that you put in our lives who will ask, what does all this mean? And what now shall we do? And Lord, we pray you will give us the boldness, the boldness to answer plainly and not be worried about offending those who have offended a high God. Lord, that you will give us the wisdom to proclaim your word and Christ's life, death, and resurrection rather than anything else. And Lord, that we would trust that you, through your Holy Spirit, will be at work. Lord, we long for revival, and we pray that you will bring it in our time. 
Pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.